Hello and welcome to another edition of the People Behind the Tech podcast, which is brought to you by the Leaders Performance Institute and SBJ Tech. My name is John Porch. I'm the editor at the Leaders Performance Institute and, as always, I'm joined by Joe Lemire, senior writer at SBJ Tech. Joe, welcome back. How are you doing today? <laughs> doing great, John. Thanks for, thanks for uh, having me again. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. And now, today our guest is KK Lyles, who is the Director of Performance at Uplift Labs, who use their AI-powered technology to provide the analytics that improve performance and minimize injuries. Uplift Labs clients include teams and athletes drawn from across elite sports. KK's name probably rings a bell with some of you too as he made his name in the sports performance space with his work in the NBA, namely with the Minnesota Timberwolves, Golden State Warriors, where he served as the Director of Performance, and at the Atlanta Hawks, where he served as the Executive Director of Performance. He also completed a spell with the US Navy Special Warfare as a Human Performance Specialist. All in all, he's exactly the kind of guest we want on the show. KK, you're very welcome. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great, John. Thanks for having me. Super excited to uh, chat this morning. Delighted to hear it. And Joe, why don't you take it away with the first question? If we have any uh, faithful listeners to the show, they'll know that the first question is usually the same. We find that those in the performance space are often uh, you know, pretty dedicated to their own fitness regime. How do you monitor yourself? What technologies do you use in your own daily life? Yeah, so currently I use the Aura Ring. And that's my primary way to, to kind of keep tabs on what I'm doing and obviously kind of write my own training programs and, and what I do from a physical standpoint. But the way I track it right now is through Aura. Uh, and then through my role at Uplift, obviously, we'll uh, do a handful of uh, biomechanical assessments on myself throughout the, uh, the day as well. And how much of that is just fooling around just to make sure the technology works versus have you made appreciable changes based on your own analysis? Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, when I was using it initially, uh, just kind of fooling around and, and making sure everything works, I started kind of using it for my golf swing and really starting to break down my own golf swing. And I feel like that I've definitely seen uh, a growth. So happy, happy to, uh, to share those results. It's like those old uh, hair club for men things, you know, I'm not just the president, I'm also a client, right? You know, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So for those who are not familiar to Uplift Labs, you know, uh, John obviously gave a bit of a a bio and we're going to get into the biomechanics, uh, you know, shortly. But I'd like to go back to the beginning of your career before we before we do that. You know, where did you make that decision that, hey, maybe I'm not going to be an athlete myself. Maybe I want to get into, you know, sports science and performance. What was the pivotal moment for you in that journey? Yeah. So for me, you know, obviously growing up playing a variety of sports like Athletics was always a passion uh, of mine. Um, and when I got into uh, college, I, I, I think I realized I probably wasn't smart enough to go to med school, but I was super fascinated about the human body. And, and so I kind of figured, okay, wh- where can I go to learn uh, about the body and started as a kinesiology major undergrad and just found it super interesting and fascinating. And uh, then decided that I think thought physical therapy might be a good route for me to go down. And so um, I was fortunate. I was at Northeastern University up in Boston in their entry-level doctorate program. And uh, during grad school, I started working as a strength and conditioning coach at at the university. And it was quickly, you know, for me to realize, and partly because just the way the facility was built, is literally the uh, training room, a wall, 
and then the the strength and conditioning room. And so for me, you know, I often see athletes going back and forth and it's just like kind of connected and resonated in my head, especially in athletics that you're, you're, you're either kind of injured and rehabbing or you're healthy and optimizing performance. And it's just somewhere on that continuum. And so for me, I never saw myself working actually in a PT clinic. It didn't really fit my, uh, I think my personality, I mean, I didn't necessarily have a dream of working in sports either, but I think the, uh, the opportunity presented itself. And so, um, I was just fortunate. I had, had really good, um, mentors that kind of helped, you know, live in both worlds as well in, in training and then also in rehab. And so, uh, for me, it just kind of resonated really well where it's like, Hey, I think there's an opportunity here to work with athletes who you have the time and, uh, resources to spend with and to, to help them. So that that's really where it all started. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, partly because of, you know, interior design, even favoring open spaces, but also because of the way performance has sort of taken everything into one. I'm sure that wall has probably been knocked down by now, right? Like everybody's kind of working together. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because when I was there uh, in school, I, I was working for a guy named Art Horn, who's uh, with the Celtics now, but Art, when he was really big into like breaking that wall down. And so they can obviously take a wall down between the training room and the weight room, but they put a glass wall in. And so it became very much yeah, uh, one in a lot of ways. Very nice. And well, that maybe you just hinted at the, the answer here, but how did you then go into the, the NBA world that you did? Yeah, so I was really fortunate because during, um, you know, at Northeastern, they had the co-op program. And so during which is built in internships. And so uh, during my first internship, I had I had something set up ready to go out uh, to work in football, actually, on Denver. Uh, And that kind of fell through right at the last second. And so I kind of scrambled around and and luckily found a clinic uh, in Waltham that was willing to take me in just as a PT kind of student intern. And and I didn't know, being from Southern California, I didn't know anything about Boston and Waltham and where I was going. And I show up and it's like, oh, it's the home of the Celtics training center. I'm like, oh, this is cool. <laughs> Obviously, we're on the public side of it. Um, but, you know, they, it, it, I, I must have been about a month in there that um, I was asked to kind of help out with the Celtics and, and start doing that. And so started interning with the Celtics. And then kind of from that point on, it, it became basketball 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 <laughs> and uh you know those who uh do some uh you know googling of your name uh you're gonna find a lot of headlines like steph curry's career was saved by kk lyles the warriors 2013 performance director that's just sort of one example and certainly you, you you've got to look if you're gonna have you know be attached to any one athlete of the past 25 years that's probably a, a pretty good one to be known for for helping um and uh, though we're recording this during the NBA playoffs, probably most people hear it after they're finished, at least as of now, Steph Curry is still active. But, uh, you know, I'd love to learn a little bit more about what it was that you did to, to help him. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I think I often get way too much credit because obviously it's definitely a, a team effort. And, and I also had the advantage um, of kind of coming into a situation after, you know, they put so much work and, and kind of going down different paths to try to figure out how to help them. And, and so I think, you know, I had, like I tell everyone, I just had the advantage of being like, hey, what haven't we tried? And what what's another thought, you know? But, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say one thing about stuff that is, I mean, he's such an incredible worker. And I think everyone sees that. I mean, his game continues to improve to this point, which is, I think, a testament to all of his hard work. But 
when I got there and, and brought in um, my assistant at the time, Mike Ron Karate, who I went to grad school and he followed me to Atlanta, uh, who's with Memphis now. But, you know, we kind of looked at it as like, OK, how how what is happening with this guy? What does he do? Let's just watch him. Let's watch him on the court, how he moves. And, and, uh, and then also understanding kind of what the injury was itself and, and why it kept happening, uh, why it kept kind of rolling his ankles. And, and so we, we just saw like, he's such a shifty player um, and relies really so much on his lower half to kind of be quick and change direction side to side, like very quick. And, and, although he had the strength, like he had incredible strength. And I think there's articles I've shared with people, like his strength is actually surprise, like surprised all of us. And I think most people are like, there's no way he's that strong, but he actually is. And so it's like, we know he has the strength, but he's just not using like the engine, right? Like he's just not using it the right way. Um, and so we just kind of spent a lot of time just kind of getting him in different positions and, and using like his hips and his glutes in, in ways that, um, I think was more conscious for him at first and then kind of get him used to that movement pattern. And to be honest, I think, I mean, that was part of it, right? There's obviously all the treatment to the ankle itself and everything else the medical staff was working on. But I think uh, it just allowed him a little bit more room to load properly that kind of took some of that stress off the ankle. But yeah, I mean, he, like I said, he, he worked tirelessly <laughs> at it and, and I feel like when you have guys like that, it's, you know, the therapist or the strength coach, we off, we get a lot of credit, but it's, it's obviously they got to put the work in. So. Sure. Yeah. And it's fascinating. And I wonder sort of, you know, more globally, like we hear about everyone's movement pattern being their, their fingerprint and that how individual it can be. I mean, how often can athletes retrain those movement patterns? How often is that a good remedy? I mean, do you even want to go down that route in some cases? Or, you know, I'm sure it's a, a, a tricky slope there. Yeah, well, you know, to be honest, I think like this, this is still a bit of an unknown space for us. I think there's certainly, um, there's certainly opportunity to improve. I mean, we can all improve. Uh, I think when you're dealing with elite uh, athletes, you know, certain movement patterns, you know, seemed more stocker, you know, harder to change, but it doesn't mean that it can't be changed. Um, but, you know, I think part of the reason why I joined Uplift was, you know, with technology now, we're starting to understand movement in a way that we didn't really understand before. I mean, I think we all see it with our eyes, but now to be able to put numbers to it and, and start to analyze it, and that's a way, uh, something that we just weren't able to do before. So I think now as we start to understand movement better and better, um, we'll start to understand how we can improve it or change it or what how to optimize it. And I think you're right, Joe, like certain athletes do certain things and that's why they excel at their sport. And so there's certain things that, you know, are sometimes debatable like do we really want to change this um but i think when it comes to potential risk or if we're o overloading a tissue or potentially causing some long-term injury then then obviously it's worth probably looking into or changing but if it's there's sometimes where that movement can unlock performance and so uh, i think that's what's fun about athletics is you're always looking to optimize and to gain 1% somewhere. And so I think as, as we start to understand movement better and start to help each individual, like we all move so differently from each other, our strategies are different. And I, I really don't think there's one right way. It's just how you move, how you're optimized and, and 
how to get the most out of yourself. So I think as we learn more, we're going to start to be able to unlock more. This is a baseball example, but there's a, a relief pitcher named Adam, Adam Ottavino who's you know had some success in pitching as a reliever in, in late innings. And I was he's someone who's very dedicated to the data and the numbers uh, for his pitch shape. But when I asked him if he ever wore the what was called the modus sleeve, it's now the pulse, but like you know, which does a lot with biomechanics and load. He says he didn't. He, he was very honest and frank. He said, "I don't want to go down that rabbit hole because." Even if it means getting injured as a result, I think he said that the unorthodox way that he throws is what makes him good. And so he kind of realized that there could be a, that trade-off. Uh, and like, of course, that's what we're all sort of weighing when we talk about you know athletic careers. Yeah, you know, I find that interesting because I've had, I mean, lots of conversations with players over the years. And it's like, I think any professional athlete knows there's risk of injury, right? But they also know like... The other side of that risk is reward, whether it's, uh, you know, through their compensation or building legacy or, or, you know, there's lots of different things that uh, can come as a reward of playing professional sports. And so I think for a lot of these guys, like they they're they have no problem with that risk. Right. Like they're like, yeah, I could get hurt. And and you look at a lot of retired athletes, especially NBA players, where you're like, man, they just beat their bodies like you, you look at some of these guys and you just feel for them like the way they're walking around their joints their knees are tore up and uh but i think if you ask most of them they would do it all over again in a heartbeat right and so yeah i think that's a really good point like the athletes are willing to put themselves through a lot but i think there's a there's reason or purpose behind it Mm-hmm. And when it came to kind of diagnosing, you know, Steph's ex- Steph as an example, but I mean, was it all done by your expert eye? Did you have any motion capture at that point? And then the second part of that is when did motion capture become something that was part of your workflow? Yeah. So with Steph specifically, it was all eye and taking videos and slow motion video and, and trying to understand it as best we could. You know, I mentioned Mike, who who I, who I brought with. He and I were in grad school together and we actually did uh, a project looking at motion capture and force plate with basketball players. So that was kind of a, our research project that we work on in, in grad school. And so that kind of was always in the back of my head and trying to understand that. Uh, we just didn't have that in uh, technology or kind of that lab setup with the Warriors. I mean, most teams don't have that partially because of the cost involved, but two, really, it's like you need to have the expertise involved. <laughs> it's one thing to like put lab in there, but it's another thing to hire biomechanists and everyone else to kind of make sense of it. And so with Steph, like I said, and I mean, really, uh, up until I got to Atlanta, although I will say other teams with select players, we, we used P3 um in, in their services of, of capturing motion capture on force plates and, and things like that but not with stuff we didn't have any of that data and so we were just using our eyes and that's what to be honest was really challenging because it's like you kind of always second guessing myself to say am i seeing this right or is this accurate or you know like i personally like that data to like kind of you know reassure myself and like okay yep we're doing this right or this is what i'm seeing is is correct and so I think between my experiences with P3, my experiences in grad school, like I've always been super fascinated by what motion capture information and data provides. Um, but it's certainly, it's really hard to scale that. I mean, even, you know, P3 does an amazing job, but it's it's a markered system, um, which sometimes just takes a long time and, and players get really frustrated by it. And so I always felt like we we were only allowed so many asks with players. Like if we're going to ask them to do things that are outside of the normal, especially take two or three hours of their, 
a third time, like we better get a lot out of it. And, and we certainly did get a lot out of it. But, you know, that information, like if I had my way, it's like we would do that probably weekly if we could, mm-hmm. right? Like it's to me that valuable. And, and to understand how the stress of the season can change movement patterns or, or tissue quality and, and how that affects the range of motion, I think would be really valuable. So for me, it's always kind of been super intriguing to try to understand that and put some numbers behind it. Um, and again, I think that's the big reason why I joined Uplift. It's like, oh, there's a solution now. It may not be as good as a, a marketed system, right? But it certainly has its benefits. And, and part of that, it's it's portability and being able to just kind of set it up and run and, and get objective information quickly. Mm-hmm. Here's a, a probably a good moment for me to throw a bounce pass over to, to John for the next question. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Joe. KK, you mentioned the stresses of the season there, and I'm Curious to talk to you about load management because it's a topic that comes up time and again here at the Leaders Performance Institute. Our members are always talking about it. So I was really keen to ask you what you feel is the most misunderstood element of load management in sports when it comes to athletes and coaches. Oof, that's a uh, loaded question. (laughs) How long do we have again? (laughs) My stance has probably changed a little bit over the years. Um, And just to provide some context, when I was with the Timberwolves, I think we were one of the first teams to purchase that performance package of Second Spectrum. So we were one of the first teams looking at like speeds and accelerations and decelerations and and when I was with the Timberwolves, I was like, I have no idea like what we're going to do with any of this, but I've never seen this sort of data before. Like I've never understood a game the way we are now. And I used to sit on the bench with a stopwatch, just like, hey, how long is a, an active play? Like, you know, it's really like seven seconds before there's some sort of dead ball, right? So, so it's like, I, I'm just trying to understand the game of NBA basketball more. Um and, and then once we started getting that data and understanding game data, it's like, oh, okay. Now in, in Golden State, we use Catapult. And it's like, oh, we're starting to understand practice a little bit more. And we use it far more with like return to play um, players, like after an injury and being able to like kind of progressively work them up um, to what we thought they needed to be at. And then in Atlanta, we use Catapult and then Connexon. And then I, I felt like that was – when we really started to blend all this information together and started working with the coaching staff on how we prioritize and, and plan out, you know, building up our off season on court play and in season and how we practice. And, but overall player management is, is it's obviously super important, right? And like, you know, there, there's so much invested into these athletes that the, to optimize their health is, is ultimately the most important thing and to op- optimize their performance I think sometimes where we might have shifted too far on the pendulum, I think we we don't do quite as good of a job as preparing athletes for the demands. And I think a good example, and I don't have an answer for it, but a good example of this, right, is if you look at how load management, especially in the NBA, uh, is used like throughout the season, guys get rest, they're on and off, it's great. But we know over the course of the season, like just from a physiological standpoint, like everyone's systems on a downward trend, like fatigue, travel, lack of sleep, the lifestyle, right? And and then you're giving rest, so you're trying to manage that, but then you hit the playoffs and there's this like crazy ramp up, right? And it's like, what's being done? Like how, I, I, and this is what I don't have the answer to. It's like, how do you actually ramp guys back up for playoffs when you're trying to like rest and manage, you know? And it becomes really challenging because it's like, ultimately, 
these guys have to perform playoffs, right? I mean, ideally, it's a night every game night they have to perform, but it, it's certainly a challenge. But I think again, now with technology, we're starting to understand this better. I think with wearables, we're starting to understand like internal response better. Players are 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 buying into this whole process more and more. And so I think a lot of what's done in the past decade has been our best guess and our, our how we kind of our best theories on how players respond. But now that we have technology that gives us the data points, I think we'll start to understand better and we can prepare better. But it really takes like an organizational buy-in because it takes the coach, the front office, the players, their agents, right? Like it takes everyone to buy into like, this is what we're doing. This is how we're doing it. When we need to ramp up, this is how we're going to ramp up. It's not an easy, uh, it's not an easy problem to solve. Uh, certainly not. And you mentioned the importance of collecting that data and being able to use that to educate and inform. I mean, how important is that education and being able to inform players and coaches? It's not just having the right tech or tool in your hands, right? You need to be able to use that effectively in order to get the outcomes that you're all looking for, right? Yeah, absolutely. But I also think that's really player dependent. Uh, and I'll give you an example. We used a system called the MegaWave when I was in Golden State. And essentially, the, the result was kind of a a green, yellow, red as a indicator of your readiness, right? Kind of a, a central nervous system measurement. And uh, some guys, we used it with one player and got great results out of it. I mean, he was rehabbing. And, and so we used it as a way to kind of like, hey, we're going to push you to the limits without pushing you over the edge. And if you hit yellow, we're going to kind of tone it down, right? And it worked great with him. With other guys, we had we – had, uh, someone who, who scored red um, in a, it was preseason in the morning. And he was like, uh, what do I do? And we're like, uh, you're playing. <laughs> I think. <laughs> and it's like, we didn't even know. And he was like, kind of, and then we realized like, it really depends on the individual because that player would kind of became like this mental block of like, wait, am I not okay to play? And we're like, no, you're okay. Like, but you know, and, and so what I learned is it's really individualized. Like some players love data information and like, will use it and understand it and, and totally, and other guys, they either don't care or it's too overwhelmed. Most of the time it's like too much information or they're like, what do I do with this? Like, just tell me what I need to do. Like, I'll trust you to figure it all out. Just tell me what I need to do, you know? And so I think that's where it's like a little bit of a, just understanding who you're working with because it is really individualized. And you mentioned guessing in your previous answer as well. And I guess good coaches, whether they be athletic trainers or strength coaches, are ultimately good guessers as well because they spend time with athletes. They've been around them. They are able to understand their deficiencies perhaps. But I wonder, KK, how do predictive analytics and AI help coaches to become better guessers? Yeah, and I think when I say guess too, it's a you know it's educated guess. Um, I always have a hard time, like I said, to really like it's hard for me to hang my hat and say this is an absolute right. Like, especially in the world of sport, like I mean, certainly I can look at HRV or your resting heart rate and say your resting heart rate last night was you know forty eight. It's like, I can say that. Um, now, why is it 48 one night and, you know, 56 the next night? Like, we can look at, like, lifestyle. And we, you know, there's things that we can, like, oh, this makes sense. But I, I, I'm never comfortable saying, absolutely, this is the reason, you know. Um, even though when it's, like, obvious. Like, if you drink alcohol before you go to bed, hey, your resting heart rate is probably going to be high, right? Like, but 
there's so much like the human body is so complex. And so I think when you start to like look at the predictive analytics and, and how we're starting to, again, put numbers and collect better data than I think we've obviously ever been able to. Like over time, I do believe like the better and better that the data, the incoming data is, then the better and better we can analyze it, which people can build these really amazing models and, and start to understand things and probably predict things in ways that seem a little far out there right now. But you just see some of these, I mean, obviously like language model, like you see what's out there in, in this space and you're just like, okay, like I can definitely see the path of how this all comes together. Now, I think like, especially in sport and injury prediction, I think is going to be really tough. Like, again, we might be able to say there's a higher risk, but I've always said like, why is it on one play when a guy rolls his ankle, he's totally fine. And then another play, the exact same thing. It looks like, you know, he broke his ankle and he's like screaming on the floor. And it's like, it doesn't always make sense. You know, it's not always like one plus one, at least not to me. And so it's like, what are all the factors that go into why that player got hurt at that time? Maybe eventually we'll get there, but there's, I'm, maybe I'm just not smart enough to put it all together either. But to me, it's just, there's so many factors that go into it. <laughs> I'm going to hand back to Joe in a second, but before I do, I just wanted to ask, how much risk is there of an athletic trainer or a strength coach becoming too dogmatic in their methods? And what steps can a practitioner take to ensure they are always working the problem in the correct way? Yeah, listen, I, I don't think there's always a right and a wrong. I think as long as like, a practitioner's thinking through it and uh, and there's like a thought process and there's, hey, I think this. And so because of that, I'm going to do X or Y, right? Like there's some sort of dis decision tree. I think that's ultimately what matters because I don't think there's only one way to treat something or to fix something or to improve something, right? Like, uh, and so I think as long as there's like logic behind it <laughs> and explanation and, and practitioners or, or coaches can can express that and kind of walk an athlete through that. I think that's ultimately what matters. I often said like, Hey, I can build a training program, right. And I can literally create the world's best training program, like written in all the textbooks, people like rave about this is the greatest program. Right. But if I have an athlete who comes in and kind of gives me like a D effort and just kind of walks through the motions, like his gains are probably going to be minimal if anything. Right. But if I, if I write like a, below average like a d program but the athlete gives me like ultimate effort like he's probably still going to get really great results and the point of all that is just to say it's like it's not always about what you write down or how the athlete do it's like their level of engagement how much buy-in they have like i think as as coaches and practitioners like the trust and the relationships that we build with athletes is almost more important than the stuff we're asking them to do so yeah i think all that definitely comes into play yeah that's really well said. And to go back to the point from a moment ago of whether like, you know, roll an ankle and it's, you don't know, necessarily you know if it's going to be the catastrophic fracture or nothing. <clears throat> you mentioned also P3. And I remember one thing Dr. Marcus Elliott said to me a while back that's kind of lived rent free in my head ever since is that like, wouldn't it be kind of, wouldn't it be a, a shame if like, you know, whether I forget exactly how he said it, but like an Achilles tear, ACL, like some of those major injuries, like, they're, they're probably not random, I guess, was the point he was trying to make. They're like, there might have been, whether it's a movement pattern, a genetic predisposition, there was probably something to explain it. It wasn't just that one fluke play, like we sometimes describe as a narrative to something that happens. I was just wondering, 
how, what your thoughts are on, on that subject and have you started, you know, we also had a, you know, Daniel Guzman, a, a coach uh, from a few episodes ago, who's working in the genetic space. And so whether it's that or, or something else, what, where else have you started to explore? Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely agree with Marcus and that sentiment of like, it's probably, it's probably not random. I know we had a player who, who got an elbow in the rib and, and kind of had a, a small rib fracture and everyone's like, ah, you know, it's like just the, the, the fact of getting, you know, hit and contact, there's nothing you can do about it. And I was like, eh, I don't know, maybe. And it's like, why is, again, why is on that play he gets hit and breaks a rib? And, but he, I'm sure he got elbowed a million times before that and didn't break a rib, right? And so, um, you know, I think sometimes we, we would talk about like, you know, being hyperinflated and just the position of the chest and, and kind of how toned up you are. And I, I kind of always use the analogy with that player. Like if you take a straw, right. Or if you take a normal straw, flick it, nothing happens. You take straw, wind it up, flick it, it pops. Right. And I was like, I think that's kind of how I saw his rib situation, you know? And so again, I, whether or not I, I'm right or wrong, like I, I, I'm not going to debate cause I don't know. It's just a theory or a thought. And, but certainly it's like, I don't think it's random uh, at all. And so I do think, you know, again, as we're starting to understand athletes or just people, we're starting to understand people in a way that's just unlike anything else and being able to track it over time. I think we'll actually start to be able to put some of these pieces together. I know that's something we're super excited about. I think, you know, the whole reason behind Uplift, right, is is it's it's a piece of the puzzle. It's not the entire puzzle, but it's certainly a piece of the puzzle and being able to track how people are moving in the range of motion they're going through and how they're kind of uh, in the speed of which they're moving through. And, you know, like I, I, I kind of have this like idea in my head, like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we just track people like the players, whether it's a weekly assessment, you know, just to understand what's happening in them, like I said, through the course of the season and like with little to no intervention, right? I mean, which is never going to happen, but just to say, let's just see what happens. And then like over 10 years, we'll say, okay, when we see X, Y, and Z, here are the injuries that are happening, right? Like that would be the perfect, you know, it's not going to happen that way, but I think we'll still get to that point as we start to like, you know, get more and more users on understanding tracking injuries and things like that like i don't see why we can't start to understand these things on a deeper level yeah no it is probably hard to get enough uh, buy-in for a, a control group uh, on, on those kinds <laughs> of a studies when you know people's uh, careers are at stake um yeah. <laughs> so my introduction to uplift uh, at least on a in-person level i think it was the 2019 baseball winter meetings um and that massa had a, a setup there and he uh, handed me a bat and told me to swing, and it became quickly apparent why I, my high school, uh, my baseball career ended in high school, <laughs> at, at least as a hitter. Um, but I, he's a fascinating guy. He had leadership positions at Tesla and Lego, but then became a CrossFit junkie who, uh, you know, sort of that kind of spurred him on to, to sports. You know, what what about whether it was a conversation with him, the technology itself? How did you decide that, you know, that's obviously a pretty big jump to go fully into the, the tech world the way that you did? Yeah, you know, I think for me, uh, one, I mean, timing is everything, of course. And, um, and, and really, it was 2019 when I got first introduced to uh, Masa and the Uplift team through, through a colleague, David Martin. Uh, and he, he's up in the Bay and says, Hey, I came across these guys. And I, you know, I think it's really interesting. I think you, you know, you should have a chat with them. And that's literally how it all started. And, 
and uh and just kind of seeing what they were doing it's like oh man this this resonates right and in in a way that for me personally like really since i left the nba and is is like i looked at what we did in pro sports i mean we had access to really for lack of you know an unlimited budget i mean if it came to a player's health like a team would not not spend money right and and when it came to i look at like the draft process this time of year right when it's like hey we we have a top 10 pick like guess what we're going to go down the deepest rabbit holes to understand the athlete as best as we can i mean under all aspects and so for me i always looked at it as like part of the reason i thought we had success in the nba is because we just had a good understanding of our guys like we understood their limitations their injury history you know, their, how they, their lifestyle, the way they ate, what they ate, you know, all these things that I do think matter, like we understood at a pretty deep level. And part of that is just because we had the resources to do so. And so for me personally, I'm like, man, if there's a way to like, way how I envision technology to like get a lot of this access, but down to everyday people, like there's no reason like everyone shouldn't have that sort of access or understanding at least about themselves. Right. And have some um, insight into what that means and what they should do about it. And so for me, this was like the big step of like, hey, I think movement really matters Um, and and I'm passionate about it. And I think that here's finally a group who's like, hey, we want to capture this and understand it even better. Right. And make it accessible. And so I think that was the thing that really stood out to me. and why I think Uplift has a chance to really just change the game as far as when it comes to motion capture, right? Like we we were talking the other day with our biomechanists and just like traditional labs are great, but there's just certain places you can't go in a lab, like in a stairwell, right? And we were kind of talking like, hey, wouldn't it be cool to do like some stuff with firefighters about going up and down stairs with all their gear? You know, it's like, there's just so many possibilities because we're so kind of mobile that we can get to and start to look at things that just haven't been able to do in the past. Well, I'm coaching a youth baseball team with a a member of the FDNY. So if you do go down that route, let me know. There you go. (laughs) Um, Anyway, I'm sure there's so many transferable skills and expertise that you've developed over the years, but, you know, obviously there's quite a bit of, there can be a bit of a learning curve when you go into other sports and uplift has spread across. I mean, what has been the most interesting thing you've learned about another sport or what have you been enjoyed getting into that maybe you didn't know was out there? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, with so many MLB clients at Uplift, baseball hasn't been a sport. You know, my baseball career ended at uh, the age of eight once I was old enough to play football. So (laughs) (laughs) like baseball uh, is, is, you know, I mean, from that standpoint, from like the especially the biomechanics of it is foreign to me. And and what's been really interesting is because baseball really is, I mean, they're going deep down this rabbit hole of trying to understand biomechanics and, and how to optimize their players more so than I think any other sport is. And so it's been super fascinating to try to understand, you know, how teams are using this data, which sometimes is hard. Like teams don't want to share anything, <laughs> even though it's like, Hey, we're, we're helping you guys. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, having those conversations with teams and and just, again, seeing them, how they're trying to use the technology to, like, develop players. And I think that's that's kind of the next thing. It's one thing to, like, hey, you know, like Steph Curry, let's let's analyze your movement or or judge. Let's see how you swing your bat. Right. But it's like I think the next really frontier in all this is player development and getting this in the hands of coaches and, and letting them understand what it means and what to do with it. 
and I think that's what we're working on really hard at Uplift is trying to make this information more digestible for everyone. Right. And I think that's hopefully it works all the way down, you know, eventually, Joe, to your your youth team. Right. So kids can start using this sort of technology to say, okay, what am I doing wrong or that I'm not even aware of? And even if it's just kinematic sequence. Right. It's like that's probably the lowest hanging fruit for everyone where it's like, hey, just work on getting your kinematic sequence. Right. Uh, And that goes for golf, too. Right. Like that goes a long, long way, which is, I would say, five years ago, I don't think was that readily talked about or or commonly talked about in baseball or golf. So, you know, the hope is to say, okay, hey, now we have the technology to to give you that insight and and start driving use um, at a young age to really help players develop. Mm -hmm. And just when you thought you got out of the NBA, Uplift becomes part of the NBA Launchpad program. Um, What have you learned about the biomechanics of jump shots, which I I believe was the the main project you were working on? Yeah, you know, it's it's uh it's super fascinating and that's what I'm I'm super excited to see especially now with the NBA uh, moving to Hawkeye um for in game and and start I think there's going to be this massive tidal wave coming to the NBA in biomechanics because it's it really has not been a staple for for basketball, right? Like whether it's uh movement, I mean certainly teams use force plates and things like that, but to really understand uh, biomechanics this is it's a new frontier um and you know you, you look at the skill of players now well i look at it this way you look at baseball like in pitching right like once baseball started going down this rabbit hole of understanding biomechanics and trying to optimize it like these you see these pitch i mean they're just it's ridiculous how good they are and <laughs> i look at like basketball and shooting in this skill and like people are so good at shooting just by shooting, right? Like they're just getting so many reps up from such a young age um, that they're good. I'm like, once we actually start to understand this and can help people optimize it, I'm like, watch out. It's going to be some like incredible talent out there. And so that's what I'm super excited about the NBA. And, you know, like what we did in the launch pad was really just to kind of understand like at a very basic 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 level like what are the differences between good shots or made shots and and missed shots right and i think what we kind of came up with most shooting coaches are like well yeah you know it's kind of like this arm angle and and how much variation of this position obviously the more variation the more you miss but the more consistent kind of in a lot of shooters and, and coaches talk about like this slot right this arm slot of the shot and you know the more they're in that slot then typically had a higher percentage shooting. So again, pretty basic, right? But it just starts to give us at least that initial peel of the onion to say, okay, we know this much now. Now how do guys get in this position? And, and you know, the the sequencing of the shot and all the stuff that I think, you know, is, is soon to come. Mm-hmm. And I'll let John finish up, uh, but just with one more, I'd be remiss not to comment on the, the Larry Bird jersey uh, that's behind you. As, <laughs> as as someone who grew up in the Boston area, I went to one Celtics game at the old Boston Garden, and Larry Bird scored 49 points in a double overtime thriller, including a, like an off-balance three at the end of regulation to tie it. I mean, he was someone who seemed to have such a pure jump shot, but also knew how to contort himself and with create things along the way. What do you think biomechanics would say about the Larry Bird jump shot? 
Oh man, that's a great, you know what? I've never even thought about that. That's such a great, uh, great question. I mean, there's so many shooters, like even like Dirk, like some of these like big time shooters that kind of are unconventional in a lot of ways. Like I would love to see, cause I guarantee there's something that they all do, right? It's kind of like in golf, like at impact, like there's a lot of ways pro golfer swing but at impact there's a lot of things that are very similar and that's what i'd love to see like you know larry i mean you just go down the line like of all the great shooters in in nba like what are those common themes right and Mm -hmm. and and then understand like larry's a great example of like they contort their bodies but like i think their arm my my guess my theory would be their arm position of the shot is all the same but how they're able to like move their body around, but still get that arm. Like that's where it's just like, how did they do that? (laughs) But yeah, that's what I'm looking forward to. Like that's how we'll start to start to measure this and understand it in a way we just weren't able to before. And just for the avoidance of any doubt, you've both enjoyed richer baseball careers than I have just to (laughs) to confirm that. (laughs) Not that your accent give you away there. KK, how important is the coach's eye and how can the coach's eye or the athlete's feedback be best used to complement what the numbers or what your intuition as an expert is telling you? Yeah, I think um, I think the coach's eye is actually really important. And, and I would say even more important is that player's feedback and what they feel. You know, a lot of a lot of athletes always talk about what they feel, right? And and it's so funny. I don't know if you guys have ever like I always resort to golf because that feels like golf is a good um, if you've ever taken a golf lesson and, and the instructor's like, no, no, I want you more here, you, you know, and you're like, you kind of practice it and you're like, this is like, so I can't even get in this position. And they're like, yeah, okay, swing. And they're like, how'd it feel? And you're like, it felt horrible. Like, you know, like, I don't even know where my body is. And, and then you look at the video, like the before and after, and it's like the most subtle little, and you're like, it, it feels so different. But when you actually look at it, it's like this tiny little change, you know, and like that's we measure it now, like with uplift, and it's like, oh, you, you know, the degrees change by like eight degrees or something, but it feels massively different, right? Um, and I think that's so interesting. And so I, I, I believe like that whole feedback loop. I mean, that's ultimately how you progress and develop, right? It's like you want players to feel certain things and then train that so it becomes natural, right? And so I think what the coaches are seeing, what the player's feeling, and then what our data is showing, like that's the perfect blend of like, okay, how do we actually get from point A to point B? Fantastic. I think that's a great place to wrap things up. Yeah, thanks for joining us. No, thank you so much. Real pleasure chatting this morning. Mm-hmm.